Welcome, this is Michael Volkoff, and this is episode 10 of Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Our episode today is on conducting a risk and compliance program assessment. Hello, everyone, and thanks for joining me today on Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, a podcast focused on the legal and compliance industry. Our podcast is sponsored by Bureau Van Dyke. I've been working with Bureau Van Dyke for several years. BVD helps businesses address the challenge of collecting beneficial ownership information for due diligence and third-party risk management. BVD helps companies build due diligence programs to reduce reliance on manual processes and integrate technology into internal due diligence systems with the added feature of beneficial ownership data. Go to bvdinfo.com For more information on how BVD can help you build an effective due diligence program and third-party risk management system. In this episode, I'm addressing how to conduct a risk and compliance program assessment. The U.S. Sentencing Guidelines, the FCPA Guidance from 2012, the U.K. Bribery Act Guidance, ISO 37001, anti-bribery risk management systems, the OECD, and other sources and guidance provide an important direction for every ethics and compliance officer and program. Conduct a risk assessment. A compliance program should be designed in response to the company's specific risk profile. My experience in this area has focused a little bit differently when we conduct a risk assessment. In our situations, we usually include an additional element, a compliance program assessment at the same time. So we conduct together a risk and compliance program assessment. I also encourage clients to avoid paying a lot of money for an extensive risk and compliance program assessment. I recommend avoiding high-priced law firms and consultants and uh, the big four accounting firms because your money spent is too much for a risk and compliance program, especially when you consider the fact that most CCOs know the company's risk profile and can usually evaluate the effectiveness of the company's compliance program to address such risks. For smaller companies, a CCO can conduct his or her own risk and compliance program assessment. In doing so, make sure that the assessment is documented and is used as a foundation for the company's compliance program elements and functions. If the CCO hires an outside consultant or small law firm like ours, the CCO should participate in the process as much as possible. Every CCO that I've worked with to conduct an assessment uh, attended the interviews and collaborated in the entire process. CCOs usually will find it to be a true learning experience, and it helps to promote better relationships with business and other internal stakeholders. So let's talk about planning a risk and compliance program assessment. Usually, the first step begins with a review of relevant documents, and in this respect, we look at existing compliance policies, procedures, and controls, internal audit reports, training program content, schedules and attendee lists, and any type of surveys or feedback on the effectiveness or measurement on the effectiveness of the training program, internal investigation summaries and data 
as to how long internal investigations usually take, how are routine matters handled, how are more complex matters handled. Due diligence and vendor onboarding processes relating to screening and financial due diligence to make sure that your vendors and suppliers are reliable partners. Meeting minutes for internal compliance program committees to the extent you have one, audit and compliance committee meetings, and other relevant board meetings or other committees uh, internal to the company. Compliance communications from the board, the CEO, senior management, and the chief compliance officer, and all CCO communications and presentations to the board or audit committee uh, for purposes of formal meetings and minutes of those meetings so that there's an accurate record of the exact exchange of information that's occurring. After reviewing relevant documents, the risk and compliance assessment should include interviews of key company officials. Uh, in addition to the interviews of key personnel and review of documents, I also recommend that uh, culture surveys or focus groups be conducted as part of the entire process. Less formal approaches can also be used, such as conducting roundtables of key officials or relevant officials to jointly discuss issues with key management individuals, as well as conducting surveys and questionnaires uh, in a group context. My preference, however, is to ensure that face-to-face -face meetings with key internal players occur, whether individually or jointly. Uh, that is probably the most effective way to collect information. In terms of interview candidates, uh, it's important to interview the senior managers who have a global view of the business and by line of business and areas of operations, geographic areas, or types of particular products or services. Mid-level managers should be sampled who are familiar with specific markets and the environment in which uh, employees operate. And then uh, I also like to include on in the list support functions such as internal audit, finance, legal, human resources, security, and procurement uh, officials as well. In the early stages, you also need to identify what kind of risks you're focusing on. In other words, you have to decide on, are we looking at legal violations, code of conduct violations, or company's culture and violations of the company's culture, or reputational risks as well? I like to include all of those, uh, and I think it's a good way to sort of focus uh, your risk assessment to make sure it's just not a legal type of analysis. There's more to it than that. In addition, uh, in terms of legal violations, we look at uh, global companies will look at usually anti-bribery, sanctions, antitrust, anti-money laundering, and if you're involved in the healthcare industry, obviously healthcare fraud. So in anti-bribery, we focus generally on foreign government interactions, sales and regulatory, third parties, vendors and suppliers, gifts, meals, entertainment, uh, travel, hospitality in general, and uh, donations, political contributions, any way that the company can spend money or spend it uh, inappropriately. We also look in the sanctions area, we look at the risk of not only our third parties, but our customers, because remember, sanctions applies to customers as well, and the nature of the business relationship, because you can have third-party relationships that facilitate illegal transfer transactions that might violate the sanctions 
of rules or regulations. Uh, and in the sanctions area, make sure that you're aware of the 50% rule that uh, applies to any entity in which a specifically designated national owns 50% or more. Any one single, any one SDN or combination of prohibited SDNs that own 50% or more of another entity, that other entity is also prohibited. In the antitrust area, we look at market concentration and contacts with competitors, trade groups, conferences, joint ventures, and we look at the homogeneity of the product as well, as we mentioned in our last podcast episode number nine. For anti-money laundering, unless you're a financial institution, we uh, generally focus on geographic and customer risks where you have third-party payments, either money coming in that you're not sure who it's coming from, or and we also look at trade-based money laundering. If you're a financial institution, the anti-money laundering risk assessment is much more uh, comprehensive for obvious reasons. And in healthcare fraud, we always focus on Medicare and Medicaid patients, quality and reimbursement systems for billing, verification, and auditing, uh, as well as data privacy concerns with regard to HIPAA. Now, a risk and compliance program assessment should be documented and conducted under the legal privilege to the extent possible, and it should examine, in general, uh, to the identification and evaluation of what your risks are, define your organization's perspective on risks and risk tolerance, and use qualitative and quantitative measures to rank the risks that you identify. And then you want to measure and assess performance of your existing ethics and compliance program controls to determine whether existing controls adequately mitigate those risks or whether there are gaps between risks and existing controls. You also need to assess whether new or enhanced policies, procedures, and controls are needed, and you want to identify if there are additional resources that are needed in response to this gap analysis. The risk and compliance program assessment also should examine financial controls. This is one area that I've uh, pushed people to get more involved in with the compliance industry. We need to break this barrier down uh, so that we are have an equal seat at the table or at least a significant seat at the table with regard to financial controls. We need to look at, for example, global authorizations and financial authorities, who controls access to money, minimize the risks by focusing on the personnel and operations and procedures surrounding access to money, making sure that we get rid of or minimize segregation of duties conflicts, and we should have anti-fraud procedures, which by definition uh, help to enhance our anti-corruption compliance program. We have to look as to whether or not we have a contract management system and examine and assess our invoice-to-pay processes so that we make sure that this is a focus of our compliance program because it is important to check how invoices come in and how they're reviewed, how they're approved, and then how they're ultimately paid. In the end, a risk a risk profile and compliance program assessment will be organized around various issues. In general, this the report tends to address the company's culture of ethics and compliance, the company's tone at the top and senior level commitment to compliance, financial controls to the extent they overlap with potential compliance risks, third-party due diligence and vendor supplier onboarding, 
gifts, meals, entertainment, and travel and hospitality expenditures, charitable and political contributions, trade sanctions and anti-money laundering procedures, the role of the chief compliance officer, the independence and access to resources that the uh, uh, compliance function has, and the effectiveness of the compliance oversight and monitoring by the board and senior management, as well as an internal compliance committee. As well, and the last issue that usually is examined in this is organizational justice, meaning is there an effective employee reporting system, such as a hotline in other ways, an effective internal investigation function that works in a timely manner and is fair, and are the disciplinary procedures meeting out consistent justice and timely resolution of employee uh, concerns that are raised uh, within the company. Well, thanks again uh, for listening to Corruption, Crime, and Compliance. Please subscribe to the podcast series. The Volkoff Law Group believes that every company should have a robust ethics and compliance program. Experience and research show that ethical companies are better performers in the global marketplace. At ethical companies, employees believe in the company, they feel vested, and are more productive. As a result, misconduct rates are much lower and financial performance is higher. We can help you achieve these benefits through an effective ethics and compliance program. You can learn more about our commitment to effective ethics and compliance programs at our website, www.volkofflaw.com, our award-winning blog, Corruption, Crime, and Compliance, and our new podcast series. You can contact me at my email address, mvolkoff at volkofflaw.com. Let us know how we can help you achieve your goals. Thank you.